Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com. From the blackest corners of your mind. They call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. We start this week with a last-minute reminder. There are mere hours left to get your entries in for our design contest. If you're still interested in submitting a design, you've got until midnight tonight. Head to talestoterrify.com slash design contest and upload your designs before it's too late. Before we head off on our travels again this week, I just wanted to share a heads up that, if you're not too tired of hearing my voice from your weekly sojourn in our dark corner of the horror universe, you can catch a guest story I narrate over at Night's End Podcast, which is out now. You've also heard the host of Night's End, James Barnett, a.k.a. Jimmy Horrors, read a story for us a handful of weeks ago back on episode 482. Search for Night's End on all of your favorite podcatchers or visit nightsendpodcast.com to learn more about the show or to take a listen. 
As promised, this week we enter La Belle Province, Quebec, and find ourselves in a sleepy little community just north of the border with Vermont. It was a classic fixer-upper. A young couple had purchased the old farmhouse with big dreams. Loads of character, the realtor had said, beaming. A home full of potential. What he'd really meant, of course, was it was old and run down. To say the house was short on creature comforts was an understatement. There was barely running water, and the only sources of heat were an old oil burner in the living room and a wood stove in the kitchen. It hadn't even been plumbed for a bathroom. Instead, an old outhouse was plunked in one far corner of the yard. But beneath the crumbling masonry, chipped plaster, and worn floorboards, they had to admit there was a real sense of charm to the house, not to mention the price the seller was asking was unreasonably cheap. They could afford to buy the house and have a sizable chunk left over to renovate it. Certainly a better deal than anything they'd found in their current neighborhood in Montreal. Plus, the smaller community was exactly the kind of place they felt they could put down roots, somewhere they could happily and safely raise a child. They began work on renovating the home not long after buying it, tearing out anything too old and damaged to fix, and repairing what they could preserve. It was slow going, though. The drive between their new home in the country and their old one in Montreal was about two hours each way, and both of them worked in the city. Each weekend, though, they'd pack up their newborn, collect their tools, stock up on building supplies, and make the trek. As often as they could, they'd spend the whole weekend out there. It was grueling work the sort of manual labor neither of them were used to. As summer gave way to fall and then fall to winter, they continued to pick away at projects around the house. Fortunately, as the chill winds and blowing snow of the Quebec winter began to settle in, they were happy to discover the oil burner and wood stove offered plenty of heat to keep the place warm while they toiled. But that pleasant surprise turned to dismay early one December afternoon when the temperature in the house began to plummet sharply. The husband turned up the oil heater as high as it would go, while the wife stuffed log after log into the roaring fire of the kitchen's wood stove and wrapped their infant in any spare blankets or clothing they could find. They waited for the heat to build now bundled in their winter clothing. But the temperature continued to drop. They checked all the windows and doors to make sure nothing was open that would let in the cold. But everything was sealed tight. Breath now billowing from beneath their hoods, the husband tried the faucet, hoping for a blast of warm water to ease his frozen fingers. But the pipes were frozen solid this was bad. If the pipes burst, it could undo months of hard work. 
that's when his wife called from beside the wood stove. It's cold, she said, incredulous. He frowned at her. He could see the fire raging through the grate in the stove's belly, feasting on the glut of logs that she'd fed it just moments earlier. He cried out in warning as she pressed her bare hand against what should be the blistering hot metal of the stove's cast-iron door. But she uttered no shriek of pain. There was no violent reflex against injury, not so much as a flinch. She just held her hand against the metal, eyes wide with confusion. He peeled his glove off and placed pale, stiff fingers beside hers. The metal was cold, not just chilled, but as cold as literal ice, despite the hungry flicker of the flames from inside. They locked eyes, unease passing between them. He rushed to the oil heater in the front room and pressed his hand against it, too. Freezing cold, while the burner inside roared fiercely. Let's go, he said, but she was already ahead of him, making for the pile of blankets and coats that insulated their infant from the house's icy interior. As she peeled the layers back, though, and grasped her infant girl, she felt a sudden, unexpected blast of heat, not from the oil heater or the stove, but from the small bundle in her arms. A new kind of terror washed through her. She pressed the back of her hand against the child's tiny forehead. Despite the unnatural cold of the house, the little girl's skin was burning hot to the touch. While they had been busy working, the infant had developed a high fever. She clutched the girl to her chest, and the couple ran for the front door. As they flung it open, the chill December air that greeted them seemed almost warm compared to the frozen interior. The woman rushed their child to the car. The man turned to close and lock the door behind them. As he reached for the knob, a sudden blast of heat from inside the house made him stumble back on his heels. In the space of seconds, the house had gone from freezer to furnace as though an invisible hand had flipped a switch. Not wanting the house to burn down in their absence, he ran back inside. Sweat was dripping down his face in mere moments. Heat poured off of the oil heater in sweltering waves. The temperature dial scorched his fingertips as he reached to adjust it, and as the roaring of the burner died down, he could hear the sound of running water from the kitchen. The taps, too, had come back on, scalding water pouring from the faucet. He carefully opened the wood stove's door with a poker and doused the raging logs inside. Then he shut the taps off. No matter how strange this sudden turn of events was, he didn't have time to waste. He hurried back out of the home, sucking in a deep breath of cool air, refreshing after the oppressive heat of the house, 
and the couple rushed their infant to the nearest clinic. The little girl would be fine, the doctor assured them after his exam. But if her fever had been much worse, or if they hadn't caught it when they did, there could have been very serious consequences. Neither of them spoke about the strange events on their way back to Montreal, but they had both come in those moments to the same conclusion. The house had saved their baby, had alerted them to her condition just in the nick of time. The couple eventually finished the renovations and moved to the house full-time, turning the property into a hobby farm with an assortment of animals. They never had an experience quite like that one again, but there was a presence that seemed to linger around the property, and from time to time the husband would notice strange, mischievous happenings. The presence seemed to linger in the barn in particular. Objects would move around there, winding up in the most random places. It especially seemed to enjoy playing with the feed scoop, leaving it on the seat of the tractor one day, on a windowsill the next, up in the hayloft the day after that. One morning, he'd even woken up to find bales of hay had been unstacked from the neat pile at the back of the barn and placed neatly into feed barrels that had been empty the night before. These were small annoyances, but ones that often made him smile. They were a reminder that the family was not alone on the old property, and of that fateful day so many years before. Their initial feeling had been right, and maybe not for the reason that they had expected. This really was, it turns out, a great place to raise a child. Our first story for the evening comes from Amal Singh. Amal Singh is an author of science fiction and fantasy. He lives with his cat in Mumbai, India. His short fiction has been published in multiple venues, and he is also a screenwriter, with experience in writing web shows and comedy sketches. Children of the Night, join me for Amal Singh's Rudali, first published in Asian SF Special of Mithila Review. August 2016 They have come to weep for those who can't. Ram Singh Chowdhury's Haveli smells of cinnamon and incense, charred wood and pine oil, age and death. Ten women gather around the Zamindar's body, lying still in the centre of the hall, all in white, their eyes blank, their mouths shut. Ten more women stand a distance away, garbed in shrill black and red, 
their eyes abrim with tears, their wails loud and ringing in the silent night. Shushi sways her head side to side, mimics the hand movements of the other Rudalis, and joins in the wail chorus. This is a sadness which is profound and unforgiving for the family. She has to respect the departed and the living. She has to respect the sanctity of this room, and be careful not to overdo anything. Yet, as she sees the cadaver, something stirs inside her. Her voice takes a new rhythm, a different note in that melancholy chorus. She doesn't realise what she's doing anymore. Even as she sways, Umba's accusing eyes burrow inside her, but Shashi doesn't know how to stop this. She sees the body as she wails for her own private despair, detaching from the strictly professional cries of her colleagues. She lets out a terrible cry that rings through the room. She sees the cadaver blur as tears stream down her cheeks. The skin is deathly pale, the eyes unmoving. But there is a movement, sudden, in the ring finger of the left hand. A palm jerks and faces sideways. No one notices this but her. The Rudalis start beating their chests now. Shashi joins the morning chorus, her eyes now affixed on the corpse. What were you doing? Umba asks, washing her hands and her feet with the cool water of the hand pump. She has the same accusatory stare as before. Shashi looks up. I couldn't help it. You couldn't help what? I... Shashi is relieved that it isn't the other thing. One job. Sit, wail, get out. That's it, Umba says. Don't tell me you started feeling for the family. I got carried away. You know Mataji doesn't like it. Shashi nods. If the rich are too busy, too unavailable to mourn for their dead, why should we care? That was the first thing Mataji ever taught Shashi. I'll be careful. Umba grunts a little, gives the barest of nods before walking away. In a decrepit hut, Shashi tries to listen to Mataji's reading. She tries to make sense of it all, but it escapes her. Mataji's voice is as detached as possible. The news is nothing out of the ordinary. A dead body had just leapt to life. That too upon the funeral pyre. But the Zamindar was dead, the girls tell Mataji. We saw him. We cried for him. These things happen all the time, Mataji assures them. Umba, Chori, she adds before the Rudalis could respond. My leg hurts. Can I massage it for you, Mataji? Nah, Ri, just lead the women tomorrow. Mohan Lal's father has passed. I have a headache coming on too. You rest. I will go. Mataji fans her head using the fabric of her dirty lehenga. Her bangles, white as bone, shine against the heat and the sun. Dried cow dung discs rest atop each other a distance away, and flies buzz around them. Shashi doesn't mind the smell. She has grown used to it. You are learning, Chori? Mataji asks Shashi. Did you get the payment for yesterday? I did, Mataji. Much thanks. Chalo, Lodkiyo. Help me to my place. The Rudalis scatter away as Umba helps Mataji to her hut. Shashi sits inside her hut. Fanning flies away. The other cadaver is a shrunken husk of a thing, barely a body at all. 
paper-thin skin hanging limply by bones, pale. Mouth agape, lips parted in death, eyes closed, nostrils covered with cotton balls. Shushy sits and sways, determined not to lose control, not to do what was done the night before. There is nary a tear in the eyes of the grieving, their faces showing malice, eager to get rid of the man who had presided over the family business. Mohan Lal, the eldest son, sits twirling his moustache, his eyes giving signs not of mourning, but of impatience. Shashi beats her chest, copying the predefined movements. Like each Rudali, she cries. Careful this time. But again, sharp cries escape from her breasts. The lifeless hand twitches, but the body remains still as ever. The payment for this day of grieving is good. So good that Shashi may not have to attend the next two, even three funerals. Mohan Lal is very vocal about his disapproval. The death of his father was very convenient, but now that his father too has risen, quite inexplicably, the town bears the brunt. Mohan Lal is angrier than ever and refuses to talk to the press. Of course, the rest of the household rejoices. The old Mukia of the family is back. But the old man doesn't say much. He asks for shadows. Yes, shadows. When the afternoon sun goes behind the clouds and the mansion casts a gloomy shade on the ground, the old man is on all fours, trying to lick the blackness off. He is perennially hungry, but nothing can quench his hunger. Meanwhile, Ram Singh Chowdhury has had a spring in his step ever since he came back. He strives to find meaning in things when there isn't any. He vows to write a book of poetry in Urdu, never once having read the language before. The two undead are the talk of the town. The Rudalis lift water from a well, frayed ropes cutting the bricks, eating away grain by red grain. Mohan Lal, Haram Kor, asking for his money back. Umba heaves the earthen pot and places it over her head. He considers us a bad omen, Shashi adds. Everyone does, Lodki. He is just an idiot. But... Why isn't anyone talking about these miracles? These aren't miracles. Umba's voice is cold, her tone impersonal. Sinners who don't get a place in heaven are thrown back to the earth. Shashi shifts uneasily as she draws her bucket full from the well. Umba's hut is in a worse condition than hers, but she declines any help offered. Even Mataji looks like she can't go on for long. She walks heavily shifting the weight of one foot to another laboriously, looking ill. The Rudalis don't want to be where they are, but they don't know what else to do. They mutter and curse the evil spirits that have revived the dead and ruined their prospects. In the night, Shashi shifts from side to side, unable to keep her eyes closed. Nights are colder this side of the village, thick, velvety darkness inside her own hut, a shimmer from the moon outside splashing on the mud-caked floor. She shivers under her patched, thin blanket. Something moves near the blackness near the door. Like ink, it seems to spread. She gets up, straining her eyes to make sense of the apparition. The lamp has gone out, and she doesn't have enough oil to light another one. Kaun hai? Lardki. There's a voice. Thin, cold. It gets inside her bones. Give a hungry man something to eat. 
Shashi gasps as she makes out the thin, old limbs and loose flesh of Mohanlal's father under the moonlight. I know it in my heart. You will help me, won't you? The old man gets up, his rickety body making sounds like a folding charpai. I have been having these... these dreams. Go away, you wretched soul. Who... did anyone see you coming? Nobody, he assures her. I will go, but I'm thirsty. Shashi reaches out for the surahi. There is a steel tumbler atop it. She picks it up, her eyes still glued to the undead man squatted on the floor. I won't harm you, my... Shocked at being called a mother, Shashi clutches the surahi with trembling hands and tilts it a bit to fill the tumbler. Some water splashes on the ground. Some fills the utensil. She offers the water to the man, who accepts it graciously. Peace be with you, the man says as he drains the tumbler. I don't like this world, but I am thankful you brought me back. I don't resent you, mother. That's enough. Shashi commands sternly. Now go back to where you came from. Silently, Mohan Lal's father crawls away through the door into the moonlit night. The monthly trip to the post office is short and uneventful. Last night's events are still fresh in Shashi's mind, like moss clinging on wet walls. The rickshaw puller is a chatty old man who keeps droning about the undead, spinning tall tales about his grandmother who seemingly woke up during her funeral progression. Shashi endures the journey in silence. Throngs of visitors wait outside the post office, each clutching their respective letters and packages reverently. Shashi gets in the line for women, which is short. Chiti hogi mari, Shashi says, her words coming out broken. Is there a letter for me? A tobacco-chewing man looks up and stares at her with a disgusted expression. Who writes to you, wretched woman? Search. Once. She knows how to be assertive. Shashi Kenamse, from Bilwara. Name and address. But I just told you. You did. Tell me again. To Shashi, from Bilwara. The man grunts as he looks into the heap of postcards. Then his eyes light up. Yeah, hey. Deck. You know how to read? Yes. Shashi almost snatches the letter from his hands. Mataji has taught her to read, but it isn't as easy for her now than it was a long time ago. As she reads the letter, each alphabet one by one, her hands tremble, her mouth dry as the letters form images, impossible and horrific inside her mind. The heat is oppressive outside the post office, beating down on her and the earth. Once out on the dusty yellow road, she finally realises the full extent of her loss. Her mother is dead, and there is nothing she can do about it. Shashi convinces herself that she would cry. She would wail like a bereaved daughter. She should be able to unleash the flood when she sees her mother's body. But her home is far away, and she can't really afford to travel. The handwriting in the letter grows colder with each reading. Your mother passed away last week. This is the reason why she feels so detached, why she hasn't shed a tear. There are no rudalis for people from low castes. The rich have the monopoly over grief. She screams alongside others at someone else's funeral, someone else's grief. She cries, even bursts into tears.
But she feels the suffering isn't her own. It is forced. The tears belong to Arudali, not her. And she knows that the town will celebrate the rise of an undead tomorrow. No one suspects the Rudalis. Theirs is a low job, the lowest of them all. No one suspects Shashi. The town is convinced that the cure to immortality lies in dying and the burden of coming back belongs to the rich. The poor don't deserve coming back. Shashi listens to their hush-hush and breaks a little inside each time. Her mother wouldn't come back because she couldn't cry for her. Her mother is probably ashes by now and there isn't a God-forsaken thing she can do about it. In the night, she shifts in her sleep. She has been starving herself, saving all her money for the journey. She will return to Bilwara, to her home. She doesn't want to be a Rudali anymore. She will find another chore. The rich people are always looking for girls like her. Girls who can work round the clock without complaining, without being seen. She shifts to her right and finds a shadow at the door. Tall, heavily built. It belongs to Ram Singh Chowdhury. I have been searching for you, the Zamindar says. I don't know what you are talking about. You know well. Us undead. We find ourselves talking to each other in the night. This is new for us. We are in your debt. What do you want? I came here to express gratitude. Thanks to you, I can take care of my people. TK, now leave me alone. Listen, Shashi, you don't have to live like this, you know, the Zamindar pleads. I owe you my life. Come and work in my haveli. Shashi laughs. How will you explain to people why you need a rudali? Did you forget we are ill omens? I will tell them the truth. You brought us back. What do you think will happen then? They will burn me like a witch. Then what should I do? Shashi doesn't know what to say. The long, sullen silence between them draws on. Outside, a cold wind rises, whistles and caresses the parched earth. A dull, scraping sound like brooms running across the sands. Shashi shivers. The cold settles in her bones. The image of a mother now suddenly hovering in front of her eyes, all too real. I thought, if I helped you in some way, I would obtain peace. Had you stayed dead, you'd have met my mother. Her voice is now of the Rudali, detached, composed. She is gone, and I couldn't even cry for her. Ram Singh sits on the floor, crossing his legs. I wish I was there. She wraps a blanket around her, tightly. Revival. Life after death. The mere thought of the undead seems evil to her. I could have... I can easily arrange for you to go. Don't you see, Zamindarji? It is bad omen in my village for a woman to not shed a tear at an elder's death. Pretty ironic, isn't it? A Rudali who can't cry for her own? What can I do? Tell me. I don't know. Zamindar waits for her to come up with something. She doesn't. After a while, he leaves, as quietly as he had come. Shashi drifts to sleep, slowly, cradling her own body for warmth. The Rudalis haven't gone to any mourning in two weeks. A good thing for Mataji's health. She is feeling much better now. Where would you go? You don't have any money. Mataji's concern is genuine when Shashi announces her decision to leave behind what has been her family. 
something like a home. Who will take you? I'll return to Bilwara, Mataji. She chokes. You have taught me much. You know I can manage. There is no teaching in our profession, girl. Only pain and suffering. Go now and don't show me your face again. Shashi knows that Mataji doesn't say this out of spite. It is just how she is. She nods and leaves. Her savings would barely last for the journey. More water, less food, Shashi reminds herself. The heat is too much. She takes a caravan which first takes her to Chowdhury's Haveli. Now, in the broad daylight, the mansion looks majestic. There is a lawn in front, a fountain and barbed wire fencing all around the area. Come, hey! A tall security guard shouts as she approaches the front gate, biting her lower lip. Who are you? I need to speak to Zamindarchi. No one can just walk here and meet him, he barks. He is busy. Tell him my name. Shashi, then see if he doesn't come running. I bet you a thousand rupees. The guard laughs. You will lose. He fiddles with an old telephone, speaks into it with curiosity, and hangs up. Then, truly enough, Ram Singh Chowdhury comes half running, half walking to the main door. Sahib! Ram Singh gestures the guard to open the gate. His face is pallid in the sunlight, and there are blue-black rings round his eyes. Shashi doesn't come inside. She stands at the threshold, gazing adamantly into his blank eyes. You said you wanted to help me. Yes, I do. His lips are dry, his voice deep, sonorous. Could you give the Rudalis something else to do for a living? She pauses to be sure of what she's asking him to do. Can you end this custom for me? I will see to it. Ram Singh nods, and she feels as if the broken pieces inside of her have started to mend. She feels whole now, as whole as when she was young, when she skipped ropes with her mother in her village, when she cooked rotis with her. She remembers her mother's face, her wise eyes, her fiery conviction, the way she fought the Sarpanch to retain Shashi in school, but failed. The last bus to Bilwara is always late, but she needs the time to prepare herself for the long journey. As other caravans, rickshaws and lonely travellers push past her in the heat, she remembers who she really was and could still be. She rests on the scalding black road, hugs her knees and weeps in silence. That was Amal Singh's Rudali, as read by Jasmine Arch. Jasmine Arch is a narrator, writer, poet, and podcaster from a rural corner of Belgium, with two horses, four dogs, and a husband who knows better than to distract her when she's fiddling with stories. Her work has appeared on The Other Stories, both as a writer and narrator, and in NewMyths.com, among others. Find out more about her or her work at jasminearch.com. Thank you, Jasmine. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Our second tale tonight comes from Erica Seco Campbell. Erica Seco Campbell is an active member of the Science Fiction Writers Association and an affiliate member of the Horror Writers Association. Her stories have appeared in many magazines and anthologies. Most recently, Tales from the Moonlit Path and... Dose of Dread. She's the editor-in-chief of Starward Shadows Quarterly and a first reader at Cosmic Roots and Eldritch Shores. As a full-time writer, she, regretfully, splits her time between freelance projects and her true passion of sci-fi horror. She's a graduate of the Utica College Biology Program and a lifelong dreamer of war-torn dead galaxies far back in time. Listen with me, children of the night, to Erica Seco Campbell's Where Monsters Go to Die, a Tales to Terrify original. Mom, this is going to sound really weird, but I think I'm turning into a monster. I got no response but the ping-ping-ping of spoon against ceramic as she stirred her third cup of coffee, even though it was only 7 a.m. Come on, don't ignore me. 
This time I'm really serious, I pleaded, burrowing my hands deep into the safety pin-clad pockets of my jacket in frustration. Purple plaid trip, of course. She'd paid $150 for the stupid thing on eBay, but still she couldn't bother to even look up from her phone as I spilled my darkest secret yet. I was taking my nail polish off earlier, and... I paused, chewing my lip, probably covering my teeth in black lipstick again. I found scales, Mom. Scales! I finally confessed, nearly heaving at the memory of the gruesome discovery. I left out the gritty details of how, starting at the cuticle, the skin of my entire finger slipped off like a glove with its tip cut off, revealing a slime-covered, veiny, purple balloon beneath. You probably just scrubbed a bit too hard, sweetie. She reassured me, her tone as vapid and empty as always. She shoved her phone into her second-hand Dooney and Burke handbag, pausing suddenly as she jingled her keys. Wait, you haven't been playing that game again, have you? Crippled by the low blow of the century, I rolled my eyes and tried to think of how I could get back at her. I hated it when she tried to talk about it. I hated it even more when she pretended to understand. I'm staying at Devi's house tonight, okay? I snapped, turning around and storming towards the door. Oh, really? She asked, ten times more eager than I was to change the subject. That's good. I was going to be late at work tonight anyway. Bullshit. I knew from the relief in her voice that she already planned on going to Craig's house, and this was just an excuse for her not to feel guilty when I had to order Domino's for dinner for the sixth night in a row. Yeah, really. I scoffed coldly, picking up my backpack by the side of the door, covered in patches and pins, of course, and didn't even bother saying goodbye. Instead, I left her with, And as a matter of fact, we just started playing again last week. I was her Jesus of suburbia, and she was my Edward Scissorhands, come down to play from her sultry stone mansion on top of the hill. But instead of ice sculptures... She carved broken glass as she stepped on a beer bottle with her ugly black combat boots. In this puke-worthy neighborhood of manicured lawns and powdered blue ranches, we were as out of place as the keystone bottle she stomped on. We were headed back to Devi's house to play the game, but she didn't know it yet, and she didn't have to. I liked going there more than my place, because it was closer to the giant satellite dish. But that was my little secret, too. School was out for the day, but the real gauntlet of pain was only just beginning. Somehow, it was even more humiliating to stare down at the ground and hurry past the cheerleaders out here on the streets than it was in the halls at school, probably because now there weren't any teachers around to stop me from kicking their asses so they knew I actually couldn't. Hey, look! It's the dikes! From the high-pitched squeal, 
I already knew without looking that it was Vicky de Floria, the most popular girl in tenth grade. Pin straight blonde hair, sharp pink nails, and huge double D's that I may have gotten off to out of spite, but only a couple of times. She could piss in a cup and pass it around to her lackeys, and all of them would probably pour it all over their faces and swoon. I fucking hated her. I wanted to be her, but just so I could walk in front of a train and kill myself. To just ignore them, Devi stammered, hiding behind her mousy brown hair like always. God, what a little bitch she was about stuff like this. I would have told her that then and there, but it would have gotten her crying, and her inch-thick eyeliner was just too cute to smear. Just ignore them, Vicky squealed back in a sing-song tone, earning a snicker from the two other skanks behind her. She's right, loser. Wouldn't want to make a total ass of yourself like last time. Oh, and by the way, your jacket looks fucking cheap and stupid. But it's not like you can afford any better, right? You're such a... Her frosted pink lips kept flapping, and her twice-baked tan cleavage kept drawing me in. But I wasn't going to fall for it again this time. I wasn't going to give in, and I wasn't going to sink to her level, especially because I already knew what this was about. She was making fun of my tail. God damn it. I thought I taped it to the inside of my jeans when I snuck off to the bathroom in the middle of third period. But this wouldn't be the first time that slippery bastard wormed its way out again. No matter what I tried, staples, tacks, and even Gorilla Glue, I couldn't keep it down forever. Vicky's beautiful, fucking stupid, overlined lips were still flapping, and Devi was now backing away with a very nervous look on her face. So there was nothing to do but slowly look back over my shoulder and check. And sure as shit, there it was, as bony and purple and covered in thorns as the first day it crept out in the middle of church when I was six. Venomous black barbs glistening hungrily, longing for Vicky's throat, still wet with Grandpa's blood and all Dad's hopes for me. If I didn't get it the fuck back in my pants and fast, Vicky's full face of makeup was going to be smeared across the concrete by the time I got done with her. So I stormed over to Devi, grabbed her by the arm, and dragged her away as quickly as my battered Doc Martens could carry me, with my tail swaying wildly behind me in the breeze, of course. Oh, come on. Nine-inch nails? More like nine-inch nails on a chalkboard. I wailed, covering my ears and shaking my head. They were Devi's favorite band, but I couldn't stand them. Turn that shit off before I come over there and... Instead, of course, she cranked that screeching, grinding bullshit all the way up, snickering... She'd already forgotten about our little incident with Vicky earlier. It was written all over her smudge-lipped smirk as she dared me to come closer. Suddenly, the low red light glimmering off her box-dyed black curls was way too much. 
I tackled her, turning the CD player way the hell down on the way, and pushed her back on the bed, giggling. Get off, she teased, pretending not to like it, squirming so hard her purple plaid skirt, the one her mom wouldn't let her wear out, was practically hiked all the way up. If you don't watch it, I'll eat that shit like Jeffrey Dahmer the first time he tasted blood. I practically salivated into her three-pierced ear. Yeah, I know what you're thinking. That's sick as hell. But what can I say? We were true crime junkies. I was the Eric to her Dylan, the Euronymous to her dead. All that shit. Gross. She scoffed, yanking down her skirt and squirming away. But I knew she didn't mean it when a minute later, she wriggled back over and rested her head on my shoulder, nuzzling in. It felt really good, but I was starting to get a little paranoid that she was going to be able to pick up on the rhythm of my third heart if she kept her ear pressed up on that part of my chest like that. I went kind of rigid, like I always did when she got like this, and the gears started scraping inside my head, and suddenly everything felt like it was melting. Come on, she teased, twirling her neon green fingernails through my hair and giving it her all. You always talk such a big game, but when it comes time to do anything more than snuggle, you lock up. No, I don't, I snapped back knowing it was a lie. I caught a reflection of the two of us laying there in the full-length mirror by the side of her bed, illuminated weirdly by the red Christmas lights she had strung up between all the hastily scratched song lyrics on the wall, and I let out a long and distant sigh. The last thing I needed right now was a reminder. Now, I know what you're thinking— but I'm not like those other kids who want to shoot themselves up with hormones or whatever, even though my mom offered to take me to the gender clinic a hundred thousand times. I hate my body, but not for the usual reasons. The things I wanted from being a guy, you couldn't get from all the doctor's appointments and tea shots and carefully calibrated blood tests in the world. The things I wanted from being a guy... You had to be born with. And besides, I never really even wanted to be a boy. I wanted to be a monster. It was enough to make me remember why I came here to begin with. Enough to help me finally gulp down all the pain and fear and kiss her. I forgot how good it felt when her lipstick smeared together like that. She bit my lip, tugging a little bit too hard on the ring. She knew it drove me crazy. She knew it was going to get me in the mood to start playing. She leaned back off the side of the bed, still giggling, going for the dresser drawer where she hid all her favorite toys. She was gone long enough for me to catch a reflection of myself in the mirror again, ringed with a tube of black lights that clashed weirdly with all the red. I liked the way I looked in that warped, psychedelic glass. I looked more like myself. I could even start to see my horns coming out. I hoped she was in the mood. 
Morgan? She stammered, practically dropping the fluffy cat ear headband she clutched in her trembling hand, snapping me out of my trance. I snorted through nostrils that probably weren't as flat and wet as they looked in the mirror, as she shook me by the arm, fear in her eyes. Oh, there you are, she muttered, the relief on her tone soon melting away into anger. She chucked the headband against the wall and folded her arms across her chest, clearly pissed off. Oh, come on, I sighed, annoyed, slinging my arm over my shoulder and forcing her close to calm her down. You of all people should know I can't stop myself sometimes. Keep staring into those mirrors, and one of these days more than your own reflection is going to stare back. Devi suddenly shouted, standing up and stalking over to that glassy portal to another world in a frenzy and spinning it around, stealing my horns and all my confidence. It already has. The blotches on the back reminded me of Grandad's crude, bruised-up mug, still laughing even with... After that... I didn't need the mirror anymore to see my real self bleeding out. My nails were peeling back again, farther back this time, and the purple scales went all the way up to my elbows instead of my knuckles like before. I should just rip the whole fucking thing off one of these days. I didn't know what I was waiting for. Devi, you've seen parts of me that no one else has ever known— Parts no one else ever will know. I hissed, fangs bared, my right arm twitching and moving slowly towards my left wrist. But here you are making fun of me for playing the same game that both of us used to love. Making fun of me just like my mother. I rolled up my sleeve, and the skin of my arm rolled up with it. The sky was always changing colors, but no one noticed me. Green was boredom, minty and sharp, tantalizing even from so far away. Yellow was sadness, wilted and weak, losing its luster and drawing me somewhere, anywhere but here. But tonight, all suburbia burned red. Red was freedom. The grinding of gears and the crashing of metal hypnotized me with every step, resounding over the powder-blue houses from beyond the distant tree line. It was hard, harder than anything I'd ever done, to resist the urge to stare into the windows as I made my escape. Every TV rattling off mindless warnings was a siren song made metal, and every messy dining room table was a portal to someone else's dreams and weaknesses. I finally gave in to the urge to stare in past the glass, chasing the thrill, the mere snowball's chance in hell of seeing a reflection, and the scraping instantly grew louder, probably because the pristine, fake-ass living room inside had a mirror nailed up on the wall above the couch, Sadly, though, the angle wasn't right for me to see the wings contorting and breaking out of my back as I hobbled off towards the trees. But it didn't matter, because I was...
almost there. I rasped to no one, but it didn't come out right. It was more like pebbles grinding the wrong way through a metal tube than a human voice. It felt like I was being choked from the inside, but I realized with a twinge of relief that it was just the spikes bursting out from my chest, glistening wet with blood under a moon just as red. When I saw that glimmer of metallic freedom through the trees, it was like all the concrete cul-de-sac cracked into a million pieces, and the dust carried me all the way up to heaven on the wings of a dream. I was so close now. Finally, after all these years. The bones in my leg gave out with a hideous, night-splitting crack, and I knew I'd have to crawl the rest of the way across the football field, leaving a trail of even more blood in my wake. But none of it mattered. The abandoned satellite dish was so close I could taste the metal with every scream. The barbs of my tail dragged unceremoniously through the dirt, tearing the grass up in clumps as I finally clawed my way through the dead leaves on the edge of the forest and into its glorious shadow. There it was, a forgotten testament to world domination and American superiority, abandoned not long after the Cold War, along with the underground facilities that stole its power. Grandpa used to work down there, I realized with a shudder, my six yellow eyes squinting shut all at once to block out the sight of that awful metal door on the forest floor. Only the sight of that glorious, glimmering metal specter could lick clean those wounds. I loved how there was something weird about the coating on it, something wrong as it slowly peeled back from years of neglect and relentless Seattle rain. Like me, it was hiding something truly undefinable lurking just beneath its hideous surface. A smoothly glistening, wildly gleaming mirror, nearly blinding in the starlight. The grinding wafting up from underground was so impossibly loud now that it felt like my ears would start bleeding at any second. But no, I realized... They were simply changing into sharp, peaked, fur-covered appendages, made for light-speed echolocation rather than absorbing abuse from high school girls. They were beautiful and twisted and finally mine, but despite all that, they still fell victim to the unbearable, screeching beep of the text message alert on my phone, as they had so many times before. I fumbled for it with hands that were claws, claws that were hands, and somehow managed to unlock the now-cracked screen to find a message from my mom. Honey, where are you? The police came to Craig's house. Seems very serious. Sorry, Devi, I growled, breaking the phone against the metal door to the crypt below. But as I reveled in the beauty of its exposed circuits, its thousand splintered hearts, I added, But not you, Mom. I could feel the last of my human skin slipping off and melting away, now exposing purple scales tougher than bone. 
My teeth were falling out as my fangs grew in, but there was still something weird stuck between them, something not too different from the skin that now rested at my feet like fat skimmed off the top of a boiling pot of soup. Tasted like granddad. My legs were working again, now permanently bent and capped with cloven hooves, but I collapsed against the base of the satellite dish to stare up at the red moon all the same. As the barbs kept flaring up and down my arms, and the wings continued their horrific journey out from the sides of my spine, spinning electric neurons through broken bone, it ached far less than other pains I'd felt in my old life. These were the finishing touches of my glorious transformation. These were the moments I'd carry with me to the stars and back. When I stood to my full height of over fifteen feet and looked in the mirror, I shed acid tears of joy. For my lips were as black as I'd always painted them. But now, no one could ever wipe them off. It was gone. It was done. My shredded clothes rested at my feet, strewn out amongst empty pill bottles and my broken phone, and at last I could unfurl my thousand peaked black wings and hit the skies. A ravenous gust tore through the forest as I took off, and branches snapped from the downdraft as within seconds I hovered far above the trees, bathed in starlight. Thank you, Devi. This is for you. I projected psychically off into the soft black night. My human voice was gone now. It was all echolocation as I soared off towards the town on wild and loathsome wings. No matter what irreparable, blood-curdling changes had torn through my body, I could still feel her inside of me. Always us. Eric and Dylan, Euro and Dead. My corpse paint Edward Scissorhands forever. I soared past the school, and then Devi's house, and then my own, drawn towards the center of town just as I always knew I'd be when the transformation was complete. I'd played it out a thousand times in my head, but never dreamed it would be my reality instead of some twisted fever dream of freedom— Raising a ten-clawed hand, palm upturned, the fun began. The video store far below went up in an explosion of toxic purple flame. And next, the church. It was the middle of the night, so there weren't that many people around. But it was still enough that the screams drifting up from the blazing hellscape were a symphony of bliss and joy unparalleled. I told you I was turning into a monster, but you didn't believe me. I echoed in a language not formed for human ears as I made my way toward the south side of town, towards Craig's house. Far below, smaller than ants, I could see all those strangers I'd known for all my lives, watching my reign unfold in terror. I paused over the sprawling prefab with a red tin roof that my mom had chosen over me. There were countless cop cars swarmed outside, 
but their blaring sirens couldn't compete with the shriek I threw off, shattering the windows of all the nearby houses. Even as the entire block went up in noxious, violent smoke, I could still hear her accusatory, anxious voice chiming, You better not be playing that game again. Blind, stupid bitch. The game was everywhere, and she was always playing it, too. It could be something as small as her refusing to accept that Devi was more than just a friend, no matter how many times I explained it. Or something as big as how she forced me to sit across from Grandpa for six Thanksgivings in a row before I finally ripped out his throat, even though she knew what happened. It was woven between every lie I spun my entire life for the comfort of her and all the other people I hated, just so they could spit all over my dignity and spin their own lies back. And there, between the pillars of smoke from the dying town, blocking out what was left of the moon with my huge black wings, it all suddenly clicked into place. I finally realized why my little game always made them so uncomfortable. I finally understood why the few lucky ones with unscorched lungs were determined to die screaming in fear. It was because they saw themselves in me. Deep down, they were sharp enough to know we were all playing the same game, even though our strategies were completely different. They played by putting on a different skin for the world, pretending to be someone they weren't at work and school, and even when jerking off to their exes or the girls who beat them up. And I played mine by rejecting that skin and ripping it off, bit by bit, year by year, until finally I peeled the entire suit off forever. Turns out they only realized how terrifying their own game was when they saw it inside out on someone else. That was Erica Seco Campbell's where Monsters Go to Die, is read by a new voice on Tales to Terrify, Crystal Hammond. Crystal Hammond is a narrator and writer, cancer survivor, and non-binary queer human. They grew up in rural North Carolina, nurtured by a steady diet of local Blackbeard legends and Confederate ghost stories. These nuggets of folktale and myth fostered a lifelong love of storytelling and all the drama that goes with it. They also have a master's degree in biological anthropology and adore ugly cats. Feel free to check out their narration website at crystalhammond.com or find them on Twitter at thekmhammond. Links are in the show notes. Thank you, Crystal. Well... Children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible 
by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Amazing fans like Kathy Robinson, aka Deadly Blonde. If you're not a supporter already, be like Kathy. Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, from ad-free episodes and bonus content to shout-outs and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to help make it as dark and devious as possible. And we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Brian Rollins, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we taunt the monsters under the bed with more Tales to Terrify. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code buttery exclusions apply see site for details if you're looking for plump lips that last you need to know about juvederm lip fillers with juvederm volbella xc and juvederm ultra xc your lip look whether it's subtle or bold can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at juvederm.com today that's j-u-v-e-d-e-r-m.com Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if your
you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full important safety information, visit juviderm.com.